women's suffrage, angry blowback, changing up the finish, bad draws and ref bumps. It's the story of Cora Livingston, part six. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves, pro wrestling history nerds. You did it. You pressed the button. Was it a real button? Like a physical thing? Was it just an icon on a screen? Why do we still call it a button? I'm old and confused. What's going on? What's even happening? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a pro wrestling booker, a pro wrestling ring announcer, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling historian, and I am here with my current partner in crime for this tale we are telling. It's Heidi Howitzer. How the heck are you? Oh boy, am I just swell. And more importantly, I'm proud. I'm proud of our listeners who did press play. So you know what? I'm proud of you, even if your parents aren't, and they probably are not since you're a wrestling fan. Well, you know what? Your parents may reject you for being wrestling nerds, but here at Pro Wrestling History Nerds, we we embrace you, we accept you, we love you, so long as you keep padding our social media imprint and our download numbers. Please validate us. It's all we have. It's all we need. It's all we can cling to. <laughs> mm. And if you are back, and I assume you're back, you know, our listening, our, our listeners are a loyal bunch, at least until the story is over, at least I hope they are. And this is part six of the story of Cora Livingston. Again, part six implies there's parts one through five that you should probably listen to. If you're familiar with the world of pro wrestling in the early 1900s, a lot of the concepts and people and ideas that we'll be talking about will not be confusing or surprising, but... If this is your first time stopping by, the first time delving into the world of pro wrestling history this far back, maybe take a step back, start with part one, find out about who Cora is, how she became a wrestler, what the world of wrestling was like in the early 1900s, what it was like for a woman in sports, let alone in pro wrestling, give the greater context to the tale, so when you get here you go, aha, this all makes more sense. At least four to five steps back minimum. And for those of you who are a deep dive history nerd already, some of you may say, well, what about this? Well, what about this story? What do you think about this? Why didn't you bring this up? To which I say, hey, shut up. I'm doing the best I can. Gosh darn it. <laughs> I am putting together the most complete story I can find about Cora Livingston based on the things I find in actual source materials. I'm trying to ignore wrestling lore, if you will, because there's a lot of things when you look at wrestling history, because it's such an oral tradition. It's such a, I heard this story from so-and-so, who heard it from so-and-so. It's a game of telephone. It's like when you read The Barnums of Bounce, a great book on pro wrestling, but it was somebody telling stories from over a decade ago from people he had various opinions on, and though it's taken as one of the first exposures of the business in the written word, it's also very... I, I have to interject for a moment. Was the title of this book The Barnums of Bounce? Yes, it was. Why is that not a... That should be like a doo-wop group. A circus-themed doo-wop group. It really should be. But uh, Marcus Griffin, he wrote a book about the Goldust Trio specifically, but this book didn't come out for over a decade after that era. 
and he, his name really doesn't seem connected to anything in the business at the time he's reporting on, so it comes across more as a drunk guy at a bar telling half-truths and outright lies because nobody's around to contradict or correct him. And so a phenomenal read. Exactly. It actually is. I mean, it is a very interesting read, but it is also indicative of what pro wrestling history tends to be, where it's, oh, during an interview, he told this story. But, you know, sometimes you go back to the papers and that match doesn't even exist or it was done a different way. So I try to avoid the game of of telephone, if you will, that you find in pro wrestling history, like you do in lots of sport history. Try to keep it as objectively true as possible while providing the narrative of a person's life. Because especially with somebody like Cora Livingston, who you will find her mentioned as like a chapter in a book on old-timey wrestling. She'll get her five pages. Or other people have done podcasts about her that is just a 20-minute survey of what her career is, who she was, her context in sports, then is more or less taking her Wikipedia page at face value with a couple other things they might they might have found here or there. So I really wanted to do a deep dive on this, provide the most in-depth biography of her there is, because there is no great book about her, there is no great documentary about her, uh, there is no stage musical about her. So I wanted to kind of provide this to the world, and that's what we're doing here. More stage... I don't even remember what you said now. Stage musical? Was that the one? Yeah, I mean, I think we could all agree a musical, a Broadway musical, maybe off-Broadway to start, will build yeah. up, about Cora Livingston would be a smash hit. Get some snappy numbers in there. Would we go for more of a rock opera style, like a Hedwig and the Angry Inch? Keep it more traditional, do more of a Sondheim type of thing? I'm open to this discussion, but maybe we'll save that for a later episode. Oh, perfect. That'll be the uh, wrap-up. And one thing I want to cover before we get back into her story is an idea I had and why it didn't go anywhere. Uh, last episode, we spent a lot of time talking about Lottie Oliver, a young up-and-comer ingenue, 17 years old, taking the world by storm, mostly kind of became enamored with her personality based on her talking about why she doesn't wrestle men, not because she couldn't beat them up, but because she didn't want to deal with the gross social blowback from dudes on you know, just in general, uh, there wasn't social media, but there was media, there was that type of thing. And I was thinking, God, I really want to look into her career more. Maybe when we're done talking about Cora Livingston, we could do a little spinoff, do an episode about her. But unfortunately, I'm going to jump just slightly ahead in the narrative to the Buffalo Inquirer on April 29th, 1912, with the headline, Gives Up the Wrestling Game. Lottie. No! I know. Too little a Lottie. Yeah, oh, there you go. Lottie yeah, Oliver. I've been thinking, I've been thinking about, about that one for like the last 30 seconds while you were talking. I was really excited to slide that one in there. Yeah, from the article, Lottie Oliver, the Lancaster girl, who took up the wrestling game some three years ago under the direction of her father, writes to the Inquirer that she has returned from a long trip through the South with a traveling show. And during the past 11 months, she wrestled over 200 matches, a goodly number of them against men. 
She did not lose one bout, she says, and now that she returns home, she writes that she has given up the wrestling game for all time. She says her father and herself met Stanley Karp, the Buffalo wrestler, in the South, and he was cleaning them all up, throwing every man he met. He wrestled under different names and has always seems to have a bout on. I'm not sure about that third act twist where it became about somebody else who is not intertwined with the story. Kind of weird. I only found her come up a couple of times after 1911, and it was mostly about her brother, who was a somewhat successful boxer. So unfortunately, don't wait around till the end of the Cora Livingston series or expect to hear a lot more about Lottie Oliver. I'm as disappointed as anyone, heartbroken in fact, but I just wanted to get that out of the way. What a shame. I'll, I'm sure we'll find another fun topic to discuss. Where we left off last time, it was 1911. She was traveling with the Jardin de Paris girls. She was in Columbus, Indiana, where the town rebelled against women's wrestling. Church groups, women's groups, Morally upstanding citizens were outraged that women's wrestling was going to happen in their town. It it's created... basically Footloose. This is just parallel universe Footloose. Exactly. It was, it was Footloose almost to a T. It was, we're going to do this cool art. And all the squares said, like, heck you are. But in the end, they packed <laughs> the houses. They were very successful because in wrestling, you know, heat sells tickets as much as anything. So they made a carnival spectacle out of it. They made it a sideshow attraction and it sold plenty of tickets. Even if there were women's groups offering to stock husbands and fathers to make sure that when they left their houses, they didn't go see the women's wrestling. But despite all the adversity, it was still a smashing success. And that brings us to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette on 12-9-11. Object to women wrestlers. Yes, it was happening again. This is Sharon, Pennsylvania, quote, Ministers, presidents of church leagues, and many citizens of South Sharon have entered a protest against a wrestling match scheduled to be held next Monday between Cora Livingston of Canton, Ohio, a weird place to claim she was from, who claims to be the champion woman wrestler of the world, and Della Connors of Wheatland. A committee was appointed to confer with Burgess H.H. H. Rudder and have the license revoked if possible. The church people say that the spectacle of scantily attired women disporting themselves on the mat before men and boys would be degrading. I know we say this every episode, or at least I say this every episode. I'm so glad women's wrestling and women's wrestling spectators have come so far in the last century that this would never happen, ever. Well, the talking about wanting to ban it for being scantily clad made me remember an advertisement once upon a time there was a show here in denver called respect women's wrestling do you remember this show you know uh i i think i do i think i recall that and if you ever want to go to their youtube channel it's almost like you could see some really bad heidi howitzer matches and you can watch Priscilla Kelly, now Gigi Dolan, kick Heidi Howitzer's fucking face off. But that's a story cool. for another day. But 
uh, we did have an amazing women's pro wrestling show here in Denver. I was the booker and promoter of that as well, hence I say it's amazing. But occasionally I would put boosted Facebook ads, and this was not Attitude Era grossness. This is just awesome women's wrestling. And a couple of times I would have to appeal ad takedowns on Facebook because they said it would contain sexual content because it's women wearing wrestling outfits, wrestling, and somehow that, according to the algorithm, was so sexualized that the ad had to be taken down by robot eyes before humans could even see it. <laughs> it would always get reversed, it would be put up, but it was just a frustrating thing every single time. And again, as you joked, kind of joking, telling the truth, it's nice to see that so much has changed. <laughs> yes. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette on December 9th also covered Cora's match against Margaret Dunn. Quote, A wing fell, striking Miss Livingston on the knee, checking her for a moment, and Miss Dunn quickly threw her back. And I had to wonder what the hell they were even talking about. Turns out part of the stage collapsed on them mid-match. Holy shit! And I'm curious, like, it was, it was like the wing, like the curtain, like, part up top. And all I could think was, this a weird accident, or was this like a new attempt at a workaround on a clean yeah. finish? Yeah. Is this a work? Like, is this something they're like, we're going to create a whole angle where the roof collapses? Yeah, do something like a Bugs Bunny cartoon before Bugs Bunny cartoons, where like up top you see her other arch and like sting up in the rafters. But like, you know, <laughs> like Lottie Oliver's up there with a, with a hacksaw cutting away and drops a sandbag on her, like, or the chandelier, like in yes. Family of the Opera. Wiley Coyote. Yes, absolutely. Looney Tunes. Tomfoolery. Moving into the new year, again, she was traveling nonstop. On January 26, 1912, from the Pittsburgh Press, the night before, Cora threw Gracie Brady in 20 minutes after Brady had lasted the time limit a few nights earlier. What makes this noteworthy is the claim that, quote, Tonight, Miss Livingston and Margaret Dunn of the North Side wrestle to a finish for a $250 purse, a side bet of $100, and the championship awarded to Miss Livingston by Richard K. Fox. Wait a second, presented by Richard K. Fox? You know, I found the belt that Cora won by beating Laura Bennett, which had the side plate commemorating that match. The center plate has an engraving of a woman picking up another woman for a slam. The plates look gold on a red leather belt. It still exists. It's part of a private collection. We talked about it last time, about how it went for auction for what most people would think is too much, but we think is too little. But I found nothing connecting it to Richard K. Fox. For those of you who don't know or haven't listened to like episodes about William Muldoon in that era, Fox was an Irish-born, New York City-residing boxing journalist who wrote numerous books about boxing and was the publisher of the Police Gazette, which was the magazine for boxing and wrestling in the last quarter of the 19th century. His tournaments crowned every important boxer and wrestler of the era, including the first recognized women's champion, Minerva, a.k.a. Josie Walford, a.k.a. Josephine Blatt. Minerva was a carnival strongwoman who allegedly could deadlift 700 pounds while standing 5'8 and weighing 165 pounds. Is that impressive? Yes, I have uh, roughly the same 
stats, if you will. And I think my max deadlift was around, ever was around 350. I have deadlifted a Prius 12 times in 60 seconds, but that's 700 pounds. In 1893, Richard K. Fox presented Minerva with a champion strongwoman trophy with 16 plates spaced with holy, 17 holy barbells. Shit, what? That's so many plates. Yeah, I'll send you a photo of it. I'll post it on social media. It's actually really cool because it's all the plates around this belt, and it was barbells spacing plates. Fox's photo of himself was the buckle, and the two plates on either side commemorated the date and presenting an engraved image of the woman herself. And for some time, the Guinness Book of World Records listed Minerva as lifting the most amount of weight by a woman when she used a hip and harness lift to pick up 3,564 pounds at the Bijou Theater in Hoboken on April 5th, 1895. The Police Gazette described the event as Minerva lifting a platform with 18 men on it weighing approximately 3,000 pounds. What the fuck, guys? That's so strong. Uh, and corroborated by the uh, record book. So, And also, it's not just impressive on its face value, it's impressive in its context of history. This is pre, not just pre-steroid. You know, it's like... Yeah. I remember, like, I remember when I was posting photos of Mildred Burke, there were shitty dudes like... Oh, steroids. It's like, no, there weren't steroids at this time. There wasn't creatine. There wasn't protein powder. This was, There wasn't even like really good ideas on what diet should be for athletics. So, but there was prescription cocaine. There was prescription cocaine. <laughs> or just about anything if you put your little heart to it. Your yeah, fat but you guys, to fail. this is... Yeah, this is this is wild because like that is, those are insane numbers to put up even if you are like up to the gills and gas. But Natty, whew. yeah, there's Ooh. photos of her. You've seen photos of her uh, that I that I've sent you in the past. Oh yeah, she was she she looks like she was ready for business and bad bitch alert, guys. And she won a Police Gazette sponsored wrestling championship at the Bastille of the Bowery who was owned by Oni Gogan, an ex-boxer. And this is another thing I found amazing. That part of Manhattan was home to multiple gay bars and was also safer for African-Americans. Hence, if you listen to my episode about Vero Small, a.k.a. Black Sam from Vermont, you'll remember that the Bastille was a steady home for black boxers and wrestlers to compete. And yes, again, you heard me right. There was a gay bar district in New York City in the 1880s. That's wild. I mean, hell yeah, gay bars. But like the fact that that was already uh, established and notated is wild. Minerva reportedly wrestled both women and men, so long as the men didn't have more than 20 pounds on her. And if you've ever grappled for real or boxed, a 20-pound weight difference is fucking huge. Minerva eventually lost her title to Alice Williams, who in turn lost it to Laura Bennett. So I assume that's the telephone wrestling lore source of that confusion. So it's something where, because there was a Richard K. Fox lineage championship, and it went to Laura Bennett, and Laura Bennett lost to... Cora Livingston and Cora Livingston had a brand new belt. 
And that's how everybody connected the Richard Fox lineage championship belt to Cora Livingston, even though that wasn't the case. And I want to thank Pablo Padre and his book, Sisterhood of the Square Circle, for the information I found about Minerva. Um, I have tried doing more research on her. She's a hard one to get information on. Most of her stuff is in Police Gazette uh, archives, which are kind of difficult to parse through. We'll do an episode eventually. But yes, fascinating woman, fascinating lineage. Fascinating to know that there was a women's championship lineage that went directly from the 1880s into the 1920s. Yeah, I think the only, I guess, the longest-lived women's belt you really hear much about is the NWA one. Correct, yeah, because you did have the one that was essentially begun by, um, by because you have the one that began with Mildred Burke, and then right. fire under very dubious circumstances and kind of went from there. But yeah, you did have, you do have these big breaks in women's championships, because unfortunately women's wrestling kind of does have breaks due to how society kind of treats the sport as a spectacle and not necessarily a good one a topic unto itself but there you go but regardless of the belt's origin it was defended on january 27 1912 when livingston beat margaret dunn two out of three falls at the harry williams academy theater on march 1st 1912 pittsburgh post there was a long article about women's suffrage movement and the athletes supporting it. Shocking to nobody, Cora was fully in support of getting the right to vote. Had a girl. And I do like bringing up the suffrage point because, again, this really adds historic context for where this was in history, in American history. And you can look at this and go, wow, all of this happened before women had the right to vote. So... She was this big draw. She was a big success, despite being in the United States at a time when she was not allowed to vote for president or any federal elections and most state elections. Right, which is wild. Absolutely insane. Also on March 1st, a rematch against Margaret Dunn at the Academy Theater. Dunn had outlasted Cora in another series of time limit matches and was again facing her to a finish. $500 to the winner with a $200 purse and a $300 side bet, which, again, that is huge goddamn money, if true. Oh, I would have been, whoo, a lauded professional wrestler at that time if those were uh, <laughs> actual stakes. Yes, because you look at that, so that's $500 to the winner with a $300 side bet, so that puts the total amount at $1,100. And that's for one match, guys. Just, just, is... so everyone's, <laughs> just so everyone's aware, uh, I'm going to give the game away. A, a standard indie booking gets you somewhere in the ballpark of like $50 to $100 for most cases on a good day. So uh, you can make $1,100 in a match. Boy, howdy. And if you adjust for inflation, today that would be around $34,000. So the question Jesus does Christ. become, is that a worked number or is that a shoot number? Because there is a good chance that was just what the promoter was putting out there to make, to make it look a lot more uh, lucrative and bigger than it actually was. 
because again, that would be ballpark numbers. And I'm not talking ballpark numbers as in we're throwing around like ballpark numbers, maybe meaning they. I'm talking like you filled a baseball stadium. <laughs> would do. You know, we're talking. I I thought you meant I I thought you meant ballpark numbers like a range too. So I'm glad you clarified that for oh, our was, uh, our listeners. It was a well built bit, and I'm rather proud of it. No. That <laughs> Something like those are the sort of numbers you would need to have tens of thousands of people in attendance to make that up on the gate. So, yeah, I'm kind of doubting that was the case, but, you know, good for them for even claiming it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Pittsburgh press covered the match on the second. Dunn threw Livingston through the wings of the theater, injuring her and was given the decision after 20 minutes. Quote, Miss Dunn has agreed to meet all comers at the Academy this afternoon and tonight. So it was a great moment to set up Dunn as the top name in Pittsburgh while keeping Cora mostly intact as a draw. The Pittsburgh Post on March 7th, 1912, claimed that another match was being negotiated after, quote, Miss Dunn picked up Miss Livingston and threw her through a piece of scenery last Friday night, and Miss Livingston was so badly hurt she could not proceed. So the match was awarded to Miss Dunn. So I'm now picturing her picking her up and like over her shoulder and throwing her like a lawn dart into like a background painting for the play that was going to be the next night. So she's yeah. like, like through the canvas of like the window of a painted on house with her legs kicking out. That's the image in my head. Probably not, <laughs> like, but maybe it could have been. I like to think it played out exactly like that. The rematch happened on Friday. March 8th, 1912, the Pittsburgh Post claimed that, quote, each young woman has blood in her eye, so to speak. Jack Mills <laughs> put down the $500 side bet that she can take two out of three falls. Cora, it is said, is sore over Miss Dunn's rough tactics in the bout at the Academy last Friday night. At that time, Miss Dunn, because unruly and picked up the champion of the world, threw her through the side of a house. Of course, this was a canvas house, a piece of scenery. Gasp. They exposed the business. Yeah, again, just like, I love the idea of just like her stuck in the canvas. Of course, her legs have to be kicking because everything's a cartoon to me. It's all I I wish I could see it. I, I gotta say, one of my favorite things in wrestling is when someone's getting rolled up and they do the little kicky legs. <laughs> it makes me, even when I like had just started watching wrestling and had no idea what was going on. It always really sold it for me when they were doing the kicky legs. It was great. Really, really uh, brought me a lot of joy. That's what I'm saying. On Thursday, March 14th, 1912, female wrestlers anxious for fray was the headline in the Altoona Times. Livingston was set to take on Emma Buckley, of course, from Altoona. The press had been hyping this up as a big deal since someone like Livingston doesn't appear in their little town too often. The match was set for two out of three falls, to a finish, a silver belt, a cash prize, a trophy cup, and the title of champion were on the line, which is a lot. I mean, did they not throw in like some real estate and a blimp? Why not? They're just being <laughs> stingy. It's only logical. It's the logical next step. Also on the card, Ed Burns versus Paul Bowser. If Paul Bowser sounds familiar, he was a solid wrestling draw who would win the middleweight championship in 1916, but he was far more important as a promoter in the Boston area 
where he would often be allied with Billy Sandow's group in the 20s. Why is this important? Because Cora Livingston would marry Paul Bowser in 1913. Spoiler alert from the past. The Cora, past of the past. Woo. Cora won in two straight falls, but the March 15, 1912 Altoona Tribune gave Buckley all the credit in the world because she, quote, showed lots of grit from start to finish, was rather skillful, and several times in each bout succeeded in wriggling out of tight places and had the Livingston woman almost down, but could not gain victory by reason of the excessive weight. The first go went seven minutes while it took six minutes for the Livingston woman to win the second fall. During the second go, Miss Bukley had the champion down, but the pair being off the mat, the fall was not allowed. On the 15th, the Altoona Times claimed that, quote, the audience had cause to object to the rough methods of Miss Livingston, and she was roundly hissed. When seen that after the show... Hissed? Yeah, they hissed. Oof. Yeah, you know, sometimes you just gotta you gotta do your angry cat impression to let people know you are displeased. Sometimes that is the only way to get your true feelings across. When seen that after the show, Miss Buckley was not in her class and that she was a boxer and not a wrestler. So a real weird way to put over the the hometown girl with the oh she was a great wrestler, but she gave up way too much weight to Miss Livingston. And then after the show, it's like, oh, she's not even really a wrestler. She's more of a boxer. So, right. So, yes, it was it was something of a, a way to be once again, kind of keep the baby face intact by being undersized. Ray Mysterio booking, if we'll call it that way, where you keep somebody hot, you keep somebody over because they are an underdog, justifiably so, even in defeat. And Brazil, Indiana wasn't terribly welcoming of Livingston's appearance. Her appearance in that town, not like her physical. <laughs> it's like, damn, that's that's some harsh uh, criticism. Yeah, the the press of Brazil, Indiana is just a bunch of mean girls. Like, oh, did you <laughs> did you do your hair like that on purpose? Oh no, no, it looks oh. fine. It looks fine. The Brazil Daily Times quote: Cora in May not wanted here. Ladies Literary Society and other women oppose the Eagle Show. Women of Brazil feel lady wrestling match is a disgrace to the city and will ask mayor to stop it. Ah, a common theme. Yep, and we're starting to see this happen more and more. Again, just the kind of carny spirit that lives inside me wants to know, is this real? Because moral outrage against women doing literally anything was something that happened. Like, this is not a manufactured vibe this wasn't an uncommon feeling in society but under these circumstances was it legitimate happening this often was it picking up steam was it a social blowback against the suffrage movement all of this is possible or was it something where they have some people there to rile everybody up and try to create this after the drama it caused the first go round yeah it creates buzz people start talking about it. Whether they agree with that statement or not, it generates press. Yeah, and I feel like it, honestly, I do feel like it was legitimate. I feel like you did get a lot of social blowback against the temperance and suffragette movement, which you see all the time. Anytime there is a social situation where there's a big change, you get a blowback, you get 
people pushing back against it, and a lot of times even from the in-group that would benefit from it. So during the suffrage movement, you actually did have religious women's groups more or less saying, no, no, in the proper social order, we should not have a say in things. It's infuriating. I'm sure you feel the same way, but it existed. And I feel like that's what was happening here. But the wrestlers being carnies at heart knew how to use it to their benefit. Hell yeah. The Brazil Daily Times gloated over the show being canceled on April 6th, 1912. Quote, Owing to the fact that the city administration ordered the women's wrestling bout cut out, the professor refused to go on with the other parts of the program. Many of the Eagles were as strong against the show advertised as the women's clubs, and they are glad that the show is off. So, this time around, the, the match got canceled, but I do want to commend all the men who were on the show and the rest of the performers and the promoter who went, cool, well, if you don't want Cora's match, get fucked, we're out. Hell yeah. Because there are many shows and many times and many people would just say, sucks to suck, Cora. We'll see you at the next town. We're going to go ahead and perform to these shitty people that, you know, essentially rode you out of the, uh, to, to the, to the county line. Exactly. The Coshocton, Ohio Tribune, I'm sure I mispronounced that, on May 2nd, 1912, Crowd of Frost matches are off. Cora Livingston and Edna Sullivan were set to wrestle at the 6th Street Theater, but, quote, backed down when they saw the cash in the box office. The empty house was evidently the result of lack of proper advertising. Only oh, no had purchased tickets. Oh, my God. So, yes, now we get to examine one of the great curses of entertainment and wrestling as a whole is what happens when you show up and the promoter sucked and couldn't move any tickets. And House was light, brother. The house was light, brother. And this doesn't even, like, show a concern for whether or not her pay was guaranteed because here's a fun thing that happens a lot in indie wrestling. When a big star shows up, their envelope is presented and they still have to go out and perform in front of, like, 25 people. I've seen stars show up to small shows, look out at the crowd and go, oh boy, and then go back and go, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing <laughs> this, and I'm not doing this, because I'm not pulling out the things that can get me hurt for a show this small. There's also a million stories, they're funny down the road, not funny when they happen, when a wrestler shows up or many big stars show up to a show, and they look out and see those 35 people, and the promoter says, oh, don't worry, I'll uh, have your pay ready at the end of the night. And the question is, will you? Oh, boy, guys, and let me tell you, the number of promoters that pay you in advance of the show are far and few between. One of my favorite stories ever, it was from Greg Iron. He told a story about a promoter in Canada and he was a very new-to-the-game promoter. He is the sort of guy who brought in all these stars, thinking that stars will sell the tickets. Here's a little fun fact. A show doesn't become big because you bring in stars. You can bring in stars when the show becomes big. Wrestling is very brand and promotion-driven. So if you just kind of come out of nowhere and bring in $20,000 worth of talent, 
that's not going to guarantee you're going to sell $20,000 worth of tickets. Seen it time and time again. It's kind of funny so long as the wrestlers get paid and the promoters get ruined. But this one... <laughs> Sorry, guys. Carry on. There, hold on. There, if there's one thing you will learn about myself and Nick Gossert over the course of these podcasts is we are nothing if not petty. Oh, boy. And how. And this promoter, you know, he had, you know, Zach, it was Zach Allen, Greg Iron, Rhino. It was a lot of the top talent, including WW, former WWE talent that is in the Michigan area and a bunch of other people in kind of similar border states came across. There was a very small audience and the promoter at the end of the night during the main, you know, there's the, always the jokes about this promoter sneaking out with the money at the end of the night during the main. He had a heart attack or quote, had a heart attack and had to be taken away. So to the local medical facility, to a local medical facility. So the promoter during, you know, the match is over. The show is over. Everybody's very disappointed. Everybody's very nervous about money. And where's the promoter? Oh, his friend had to drive him to the hospital because he was having a heart attack. No pay, no gas money. People had driven from Cleveland, from Detroit. <laughs> there were people, or they didn't even have, some that had flights, didn't have any way to get to the airport. So it was literally asking fans for rides for rides home across a fucking country-to-country border because the promoter couldn't move tickets. So I do not blame Cora Livingston and Edna Sullivan for looking out at the crowd saying, fuck this noise, we're out. Good instincts. In Manessa, Pennsylvania, on May 14, 1912, at the Star Theater, as part of a boxing and wrestling card after the vaudeville show, quote, the main attraction of the evening will be Cora Livingston, the champion lady wrestler, in a match with Mae Kelly of Johnstown. These two girls are in themselves worth the price of admission. The Monison Valley, and again, I'm almost certainly butchering the name of that town. I apologize to the town and anybody there who cares. Covered the match in the May 15th, 1912 edition. May Kelly got the first fall in 7 minutes, 49 seconds with a half Nelson and heel lock. Cora got the second fall in 1 minute, 50 seconds, and the third in 1 minute, 17. Both with a toehold. Quote. Really? Really targeting them feetsies? Well, the toehold was becoming the hot move. It's like the sharpshooter after Bret Hart. The toehold was... It's, it, it's a move that's been around since ancient Egypt. Like, I kid you not. There are hieroglyphs of submission holds from Egyptian wrestling that then went to Greece. That just kind of went from there. It's a very common submission hold. For those of you who have never seen it or don't know what I'm talking about, watch a Ken Shamrock or Kurt Angle match and you'll see it applied quite often. But it was the finishing move of Frank Gotch. Frank Gotch popularized the toehold. It was one of his signature moves. It was how he turned over George Hackenschmidt to get his big win against the Russian Lion. So all the cool kids were trying to be cool kids by using the toehold. The toehold was something that people recognized. It was something that they admired. It's something where people would see how it was applied. They would recognize it because 
Gotch had made it famous. So Livingston knew that, or her management knew that, and leaned into it and started using it a lot to finish matches. But while she won two out of three, Miss Kelly was the decided favorite with the audience as she worked clean and won her fall on straight scientific and honorable tactics, while the Livingston girl, after losing first, became angered, even desperate, and true. I, I just love these these this new way of doing things because they are going to finishes. They're not just doing like DQs off of fouls or her pulling hair and clawing eyes. She's now winning right. with clean submissions and pins, but it's just being dirty on how you get there. Um, I feel like that was a good marketing tactic because you can only do the burn the house down strategy so many times before it eventually kind of loses its heat. It kind of becomes predictable. You need to start having the consistent wins, like conclusive wins, in order to make that title actually mean something. Well, and especially for someone like Cora, who holds on to that title for so fucking long, which, great, right? But you have to keep it interesting. I mean, there's nothing worse than someone who has a forever long title reign, whether they're working different towns or not. And it's just drags and drags because it's the same shit over and over, especially with heel shenanigans, which I mean, great, but you can only do variations on a theme so many times. Exactly. You will see people who change their tactics. You do in, you know, in modern wrestling, you would have the same thing as in old timey wrestling where you would have heel turns and double turns and, switches of you know how the character is presented how the matches are presented how the finishes are presented and a heel can only stay hot based on the shock value of how they win so a heel has to change up their tactics has to change up their presentation to continue making people mad because you only piss people off the same way so many times so you have to find new ways to piss them off and that seems like the catching the toehold because a lot of people saw that as a dangerous, sometimes dirty move. Uh, it's how Evan the Strangler Lewis uh, fucked up Matsuda's leg that caused a lot of bad press for him. Again, Cora does take a lot of pages from Evan Lewis's book, whether it's intentional or you know, happenstance. She had a very similar career. So yeah, switching to a leg lock where the risk of injury is so high and especially when it's something where if you crank it, you can do permanent damage, or you use that gently to put the risk of injury to turn them over. It's kind of a bully move. Even if it's at its cleanest, it's a bully move. It makes her look like a bully instead of an outright maniac, which is, you know, I guess progress. Yeah, and you know what, guys? That is uh, one of the reasons that submission finishes are so good for your favorite heels. August 10th, 1912, Monagahela, Pennsylvania, I'm again sure I butchered that name, daily Republican article about the upcoming Moose Carnival featuring the <laughs> and it's, you know, the Moose Lodge. I, I also wanted it to be just like a bunch of a bunch of moose having a party. A moose yes. Carnival, like, you know, you know, the, the moose are like riding the rides. It's a beautiful mental picture, but sadly not what was happening. Oh, I was hoping for some like carnival barkers dressed like carnival barkers that were also moose. Uh, yeah, it's it's a delightful mental image, not the case. 
But there we find Cora Livingston and Paul Bowser doing open challenge matches on August 12th. On October 9th, 1913, we have an advertisement for the Grand Theater in Fairmont, West Virginia. The Jardin de Paris girls on tour. A feast of fun and merriment. La Belle Helene and the Devil's Bride. Michelle's model. Special added attraction. Cora Livingston, champion lady wrestler of the world. Paul Bowser, the demon wrestler, also in appearance. Prices 25 cents, 75 cents, and $1 for boxes. Man, big bucks. On October 21st, 1912, Bowser and Livingston doing the open challenges at the Lyric, according to the Butler, Pennsylvania Citizen. So we're now starting to see the constant touring and pairing of Livingston and Bowser on the road. And in this time, you almost have to think about it in social context to why it's shocking. Livingston always got top billing. Bowser was a draw. Bowser was a star, but he always played second billing to Cora Livingston while on tour. So now they're getting the same billing or just when they're advertised, I suppose? Well, when you see the advertisements, it always be at the top in big letters, Cora Livingston, lady wrestling champion, or however they phrase it. And then in small underneath that, Paul Bowser, the demon wrestler. So fuck that guy. So Cora was the star. Bowser was the supporting act. Right. Around this time, we also see other women claiming to be the champion, having, quote, beaten Cora Livingston, like in the McKinney, Texas Courier Gazette on November 29, 1912, announcing that Miss May Harris would be in action and that she, quote, won the title of champion female wrestler of the world from Cora Livingston February 22nd of this year in the New York Hippodrome. And for the record, Cora was at the Howard in Boston in late February. So not only did that match not happen, it didn't happen that way. It only in the fantasy world of how they're trying to promote this. Ads in the same paper in December claimed she won the title from Cora in 1908, at which time Cora was contracted at the Folly Theater in Patterson, New Jersey. Yeah, take that promoters from 1912. A wrestling historian in 2023 is calling your bluff and your bullshit. I'm sure they're rolling in their graves. They're enjoying hell for all I care. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) But women were declaring themselves champions for marketing purpose because they outlasted Cora in time limit matches, or sometimes it was just 100% bullshit. On January 12th, 1913, the Boston Globe advertisement for the old Howard Theater. Quote, Cora Livingston, the champion lady wrestler of the world, pulls in with her big wrestling mat and says, he's here to clean up all Boston wrestling champs. Cora sure is the talky kid, but then she can wrestle a bit too, and all Matt fans will see the real goods. So I love the, oh man, she just knows how to shoot off her mouth, but she can wrestle a little bit as well. Sound like anybody else I know? I feel attacked. I feel triggered. I feel a lot of things right now. But yes, that's what's uh, certainly gotten me this far in my career. Quote, she boasts that the athletic girls of Boston are the easiest she ever tackled and sends word to them all to be on hand any day or night this week at the Howard and that she will take their measure in short order. 
According to the Hartford Current on January 16th, there were a couple of, quote, unknowns who lasted the time limit. So, again, she cut a promo of promos in that day where she would come into a new town and be like, I hear all the wrestling women in this town are garbage and the easiest to pin. And if any of them will show up, I will whoop their butts. So, yeah, she knew how to rile people up like nobody's business. I just love her so much. The Lewiston Daily Sun on February 13th, 1913. Woman wrestler announcing that promoter Gus Legendre had secured Cora Livingston, in this article, of course, Livingstone, to appear that Friday night, three days notice, which will be her first appearance in Maine. She will be wrestling May Kelly, quote, the bouts will be catch-as-catch-can or Greco-Roman, as Miss Livingstone is good at both styles of wrestling. Which I had never really heard everything I've seen. It's always catch-as-catch-can. So here right. I brag about Greco-Roman skills, because the two, even though they are wrestling, are not necessarily translatable skills, because they are very different rule sets and therefore very different strategies. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it's bullshit. Who knows? But that's how she's being advertised. Fantastic. This is another thing I found fascinating was how the wrestling game would often have these huge matches with like less than a week's notice. It would be like with like three or four days notice, a huge match is going to take place. So you better get your tickets now. But Again, there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no smartphones, there's not a lot going on. You can't go and see one of 20 movies. It's literally only entertainment is what's happening at the vaudeville halls, at the burlesque theaters. So yeah, these people would be showing up and going out somewhere, might as well be there. You don't need like the month-long hype for a pay-per-view. Right, that's all you get, guys. That's it. Further down in the same advertisement, Paul Bowser will be wrestling Young Ludgins, who holds many belts and gold medals won in wrestling tournaments held in the West. Again, you just say things happen in the West and anything to be true. Like, he beat a 12-foot-tall Navajo and then pinned a Tyrannosaurus out West. Prove me wrong, kids. Prove me wrong. You can't. You can't. Yeah, anything further west than Kansas City might as well be the moon, so anything could happen there. Who knows? On the 14th, the same paper hyped the match in that, quote, Manager Legendre states that he expects many of the gentler sex to attend and will ask Miss Livingston, of course, Livingstone here, mm -hmm. to address them on the points of the game. So he's really making an effort to sell women's wrestling. Not only is he bringing the star to town, He's hoping to sell tickets to women and even wants Cora to give a lecture to said women to help them understand and appreciate wrestling. So I really feel like this this guy was really had a good idea on how to make money and to kind of promote women's wrestling as a spectacle, but in a healthy way. Right. Of course. Naturally. On the 15th, the Daily Sun reported that Livingston won two out of three falls. The first in five minutes, May Kelly got the middle one in one minute, and Cora closed it out by winning the third in four minutes, 21 seconds. Quote, the exhibition was free of objectable features and as a whole was one of the best that has ever been seen here. The audience was both orderly and appreciative. Mr. Legendre officiated as a referee 
and once while trying to separate the lady wrestlers when they were roughing it a bit, got a nice little fall all his own. So we've got a rough bump. And I, I love a rough bump. Very exciting. Was there a police pull apart as well? And I assume the plan was to make women's wrestling look fun and professional so that people would want them back instead of the violent heat-seeking she usually put on. Also, I feel he did it that way to kind of work around any possible like social outrage or church groups that would try to throw as much dirt on it as possible. He wanted it to make make it look like a legitimate contest, make it look like a fun, interesting thing. The wrestling would be scientific, as they put it, so that when you know anybody would have any source of complaints, they wouldn't have a real good source to hold on to. I also like him putting himself center stage as the referee. I used to referee at my own show as well, so I get it. But I love him taking a ref bump because I'm sure he was like a you know a larger man. So the two yeah. busting it and then knocking him on his ass must have gotten one hell of a huge pop because that was still like not a common thing. You did not bump the senior official. Yeah, women's wrestling in the 30s, 40s, 50s would the ref bump would become bread and butter. A lot of yeah. times be like, you know, you pull the referee's shirt off of him as like a sign of disrespect, or like, you know, Mildred Burke and Mae Young and that generation would beat the shit out of the male refs <clears throat> because they would just be going wild because they were selling wrestling as a wild and crazy thing, brawling through the crowds. The sort of thing of course. You for women's wrestling in that era. But again, a rough bump for Cora Livingston is dialing it so far down compared to the usual maniac shit she'd be doing. Yeah, which is ridiculous that that was that was her turn down. Yeah, that was that was her tile down to one. It's just merely knocking a male referee on their ass. <laughs> which again, I'm sure in 1912 was a oh my lord, you know, type of moment. Yeah, like that was that was crazy at that time. That's yeah, that's nuts. Yeah, the sort of things you know, wish there was some sort of footage to see to see if it was a comedy spot or kind of like more of a brutal spot. But either way, again, I'm sure it got a lot of reaction. The clean finishes ensured nobody was outraged by the by the end of it because I'm sure he didn't have her lined up. It's it's like when a big star is doing a tour and the small market is always the last one to to uh, to get their their hands on her. It's kind of like right. my show with Maki Ito and a lot of other Japanese talent where I will get them once or twice a year. So you really just got to have to do an out of storyline fun match that doesn't really set up anything because it's just simply about the spectacle of them being there, having a fun match. Everybody leaves entertained. Everybody leaves happy hoping that that kind of the people who came to rubberneck, the people who came kind of because of the freak show element of it, will have such a good time that they will return whether Cora Livingston is there or not. Yes, you were essentially putting the playlist on shuffle for these kinds of shows. Uh, you are not following any kind of logical er uh, order from show to show. And... It was fun for everyone. Clean finishes, a wild night, which is going to bring the end to a wild episode. So this is where we're going to put a pin in things because, yes, again, this is a long series. This is like the Tom Jenkins series. This is like my Goldust Trio series because I want to give the biggest picture of women's wrestling 
in the early 1900s that I possibly can. And hopefully it is rewarding to everyone who's listening as it is for us to present. So how are you liking, again, how are you liking this story so far? Oh, I love it. Clearly. I I think Cora was clearly a woman before her time. And uh, it seems like it's constantly a case of what will she come up with next? What tomfoolery is next on the, the docket? And that's one thing I really have appreciated about her is she was an evolving character. She understood or somebody in her creative circle understood if you present the same thing time and time again, you know, a woman, a woman in wrestling. Oh, my God. But now it's a woman in wrestling who are just being psychopaths and being brutal and DQs. And then you do the DQ finishes nonstop. And then you try to start riots and have the police pull them apart. And then towns are trying to cancel her performances. So now she switches to the toehold. So it's a bully submission move that keeps her winning. So it's a yeah. constantly evolving character and a constantly evolving sport to keep her hot and relevant while holding on to a championship for multiple years. It, uh, yeah, and it's just wild how how long her reign of terror lasted, honestly. Yeah, because we do see so many women in the background of the story who are recurring characters. So I, unfortunately, I don't know enough about them to qualify or quantify what made Cora the star and all of them, the, the regional stars or the second fiddles or the supporting cast. As right. Things, I feel it comes down to charisma, coincidence, and pure luck. Who can ever say what turns somebody into a star? Not me. I just got to let it happen and hope for the best. <laughs> Godspeed. But we're going to call it a day here. I'll post as many photos and interesting headlines as I can find. Been a little quiet on social media, mostly because there's just five photos of Cora that just keep getting reused. Unfortunately, just not a not somebody where there was a lot of different media like you would have with Gotch or Jenkins or Hackenschmidt at the time where there was different photos every other week. But I do what I can with what I can find. So make sure you follow us on all the socials so you can see that. But we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next part of the Cora Livingston series. And until then, for Heidi Howitzer, I'm Nick Gossers. We'll talk to you then. Okay.